0: good afternoon. My name is Peter Hurdle, and as you can see from my first slide, I'm not from Oxford. I'm an archivist who's been directing the Cornell Institute for Digital Collections and am now serving as a senior policy advisor in the library. I am not, therefore, either an Oxonian or a lawyer, which makes the invitation to join this illustrious panel all the more special. Uh, I'm delighted that it is occurring during one of my frequent visits to Oxford, to visit Bodley's librarian, who's also my wife, and I commute back and forth from Ithaca, New York, to Oxford. Um, I'm especially pleased to find myself on a panel for the first time with one of my co-authors. During the past 25 years, much of my time uh, I've been experimenting with ways of utilizing new analog and digital technologies and network infrastructures to increase access to primary source material. In order to convert material, I had to become conversant with the principles of copyright and the anomalies it presents for users. For example, I had to learn how, under U.S. law, this letter from John Adams to Abigail Adams, written on to November 1800 could now be in the public domain, free for all to use, uh, whereas this other letter, written between the same two people and written on 3 July 1776, is currently protected by copyright until 2059. The issue, of course, is that certain uses of copyrighted creative works will require the permission of the copyright owner. Fortunately, if a work is recent, there's a strong chance that we can identify and locate the copyright owner. If one wanted to use Grant Wood's iconic American Gothic, for example, it's relatively easy to learn that both the Art Institute of Chicago, which owns the painting, and VAGA, the Visual Artists and Galleries Association, assert control over it. What may come as a surprise is that the Art Institute also asserts a copyright in the reproduction of the painting. If I wanted to use the painting, I may need to seek permission from both the owners of any copyright in the original as well as from the owner of any rights in the reproduction. Either could deny my request to use the work. Even more problematic is what happens with public domain works. You all recognize this painting And trust me when I tell you that Leonardo's heirs have no claim to copyright in it. What you can't see is what is marked with these ovals. So let's zoom in and you'll see that it is a copyright assertion in the reproduction from the licensing agent for the Louvre. There are no legal limits on what I can do with the public domain original, but the museum is asserting that I need its permission to use this specific reproduction of the work. There are generally two bases for a repository's assertion of ownership and control over reproductions from its holdings. The first, as we've seen, is the assertion of copyright and reproductions. But some recent court decisions in the U.S., France, and Canada suggest that, at least in those countries, such claims may be groundless. In these countries, originality is considered to be a key component of copyright. It may require tremendous skill and technical ability to make a slavish copy, but it does not require originality, and hence there can be no copyright. This possibility arose when the National Portrait Gallery made available on its website copies of all of its collection. Moderate size images could be viewed in their entirety, and it was possible to zoom in on high resolution tiles of portions of the original works using software called Zoomify. A Wikimedia volunteer developed a program to download and stitch together the tiles, and he added more than 3,000 complete high-resolution images to Wikimedia Commons. In July 2009, the gallery's lawyers wrote to him, accusing him of copyright infringement. The Wikimedia Foundation wrote back challenging the assertion that the gallery owned any copyright in the reproduction of the public domain works. There's been no follow-up action, perhaps because of the uncertain copyright status of the reproductions and the images remain part of Wikipedia. The second basis through which repositories control the use of their collections is via contractual agreements with the repositories users. It is quite common for repositories to require as a condition of access to their holdings that researchers abide by terms limiting what they can do with reproductions. If you violate the terms, you are contractually at fault. Copyright is not an issue. Here we see the rules for special collections at the um, University College London. They note that the agreement of to the terms as a condition for access and that the researcher must seek the repository's permission in order to publish any material found therein, even if that material is in the public domain. And these restrictions do not extend just to users of physical manuscripts, virtual libraries, such as the Roman de la Rose digital library, include terms and conditions that prohibit downloading of the files and other uses. We could talk more about the legal and policy basis for repository control of collections, uh, but there's not enough time. Uh, For those who are interested, I would direct you to an excellent recent study by Kenneth Cruz in the Fordham Intellectual Property, Media and Entertainment Law Journal entitled, Museum Policies and Art Images, Conflicting Objectives and Copyright Overreaching. Instead, we can simply acknowledge that through their assertion of control, copyright owners and repositories can have a substantial impact on cultural heritage studies. For example, the graduate student wishing to include images in a thesis, especially one that may be available in electronic form, may find that the time and cost for securing permissions can be overwhelming. The same is true for a senior scholar working on a project linking data from multiple sources. And there's always the possibility that permission may be denied. One of my favorite illustrations in Susan uh, Bielstein's very useful book, Permissions, is the first one. For those of you who can't recognize that painting, let me read the caption. Francis Bacon, study after Velazquez's portrait of Pope Innocent X. The Bacon estate asked to read the relevant text for this image and subsequently refused copyright permission to publish it. But at least as far as public domain images are concerned, there's been a growing counterweight. It began with a seminal article by Kenneth Hama of the Getty Trust. Hama argued that making visual reproductions of public domain artworks available for use and reuse without charge would encourage learning and foster further creativity, both of which are part of the mission of cultural heritage repositories. Would it not then, he asked, be reasonable to put high quality images of public domain art back into the public domain, unfettered and unrestricted for all? Would it not be in everyone's better interest to make it easy to share these resources, such as using the internet to provide access to them for public education and benefit? Looked at through the lens of a healthy public commons for creativity, there may be no easier or better service for museum leaders to provide. Similarly in 2009 a working group of the Max Planck Institute issued a best practices for access to images recommendations for scholarly use and publishing among the recommendations of the report were that museums and collections could should seek to cooperate with non-commercial image archives specializing in open access for educational purposes this goal has been taken up by Open GLAM or galleries, libraries, archives, and museums initiative. And some collections have responded. The Metropolitan Museum of Art, for example, created its Images for Academic Publishing program that waived permission fees for some projects. The Victoria and Albert Museum began to offer free high-resolution images for personal and academic use. A few years ago, the Cornell University Library decided to release all of its public domain materials. Our current policy states that we neither grant nor deny permission to use public domain material and will only charge a service fee associated with created or retrieving a digital image from our servers. Recently, Yale University did the same for all of its public domain collections, both textual and image. So is the National Gallery of Art in Washington, DC, the Walters Museum in Baltimore, and most recently, the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam. And many of you will be familiar with the open government license that allows the free use of some some crown copyright protected works. This is an exciting time for cultural heritage institutions. The loss of presumed copyright and reproductions and the legal limitations inherent in contractual arrangements with researchers could be a source of concern. Instead, the potential of open access means that our holdings can be used and remixed by cultural heritage researchers in ways never before possible. And the users of cultural heritage have an ever-increasing pool of unrestricted content on which to draw. Thank you.